The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to today's Barron's Live. I'm Abby Schultz, a senior writer at Barron's Penta. And today we're talking about all things champagne, from investing in it to drinking the very best. With me is Tom Gearing, CEO of Cult Wines, a London investment firm, and um, Atul Tuari, who is Cult Wines CEO for the Americas. Welcome, Tom and Atul. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Um, before we get started, I just want to remind everybody who is tuning in that you can write in questions and we will try to get to them before our time is up today. So Tom, why don't you start us off um, by giving um, our viewers and listeners a quick snapshot of what Cult Wines is all about when, and what investing in fine wine through your firm is like. But also, if you could give us a brief introduction as to how you personally became interested in great wines and investing in them, that would be interesting too. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for uh, inviting us on um, to, to talk today. We're really excited. And yeah, just a bit of background about myself. I was very fortunate um, when I was younger to grow up around my wine, um, which was uh, as a result of my father. He was very passionate about wine when I was growing up. He, he, he was actually an investment banker by trade. Uh, he started to fall in love with wine. It, it seems to be a weird connection. I'm sure that's all can touch upon this about people in finance ending to gravitate towards wine. Um, so the first time I ever went to a vineyard and tasted wine um, was in sort of the early sort of mid to no- mid 90s when I was sort of about 10, 11 years of age and tasted some great wines with my father and really had a lot of education from him and understanding from him. In terms of cult wines as a business, it was a, a it was an idea that my brother and I had whilst I was at university um, in 2007. And this was during the global financial crisis. And essentially, he was working in financial services. He was a little bit older than I was. Uh, and I was at university. And what we saw happening in the wider world was that with the global financial crisis, people were um, you know, losing a bit of confidence in traditional asset classes. People were looking for safe havens. People were looking to diversify their portfolios. And people were looking uh, for alternative sources of return uh, because of the record low interest rates. And my brother and I had grown up around wine, as I described, and we understood that wines could appreciate in value and that you could make money from wine. And so what we couldn't really understand from our perspective was why more people weren't doing this, which to us mm-hmm. felt so normal or so, something that we just understood as, you know, something that we grew up around. So when we launched Cult Wines, it was because we looked at the market and what we realized was that actually it's very, very difficult for most people to actually just start buying, collecting and investing in wine without a great deal of knowledge, a great deal of expertise, a great deal of time um, and also the accessibility and so Colt Wines as a company started because we thought there was a gap in the market. We thought the timing was right. But we also believed that there was an opportunity to create a company that made it easier for people to get into wine, not just from an investment perspective. Obviously, that was the main sort of driver for why people we felt should be looking at it. But from the perspective of how can we make it more accessible? How do we make it go to a new audience? We didn't necessarily want to go out there and compete with the people that were already doing this. We wanted to go out to new people and say, hey, wine's a great asset class. It really gives you more. It's more than just an investment, but it can give you great returns. And so cold wines existed to make it easier 
and more accessible for more people around the world to start building a collection of wine and start building an investment portfolio. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about an investment for portfolio of wine instead of stacks and bonds. Um, and, and I will get into some of the details about how that all works in a bit. Um, uh, I just wanted to introduce the topic of t champagne, which we're talking about today, because it is, um, you know, why not talk about champagne? It's like very fun. Um, and it's also the holiday season. And so festive drinks are top of mind for everybody. Um, a tool I was wondering if I could bring you in here to also give us a quick snapshot of what, you know, drew you to great wine and to investing. And also, um, if you could describe what um, what defines an investment grade champagne? I mean, every lots of people drink champagne, but what what makes it an investment grade? Sure, thank you, uh, Abby, and thanks to everyone uh, tuning in as well. Um, I actually had a maybe a different upbringing than Tom did. Uh, uh, my my parents are uh, old school Indian parents. I was born in India. They they actually don't really drink. Uh, so, so unlike uh, Tom, I didn't get a chance to tour the vineyards when I was young, but uh, all that said, I've made up for it, I think, uh, over time. Um, my uh, my interest in wine really started in London um, when I worked uh, in the city for uh, BMO, a large uh, Canadian financial institution. And my boss uh, was into wine. And so uh, I had the uh, uh, the pleasure of, of trying some some nice wines and and started to realize that hey this is a little more interesting than uh, beer. Uh, and, uh, when I came back to Canada, I, I took some courses and again, had, like a lot of things in life, had the good fortune of a a mentor who was very wine knowledgeable and was able to experience some wonderful wines with him and friends and other people in the wine circle. And ultimately, he brought me into uh, what's called the Confrie des Chevaliers, which is a Burgundy wine group. So after that, uh, you're, you're basically spoiled uh, and, and you don't really want to go go back to beer or gin. So uh, that, that's my uh, that's my journey um, in terms of uh, uh, the asset management side of it. My, my background is in asset management. Uh, my most recent role was CEO of Vanguard in Canada. Um, and uh, from there, I was looking to find a way to marry the, my passions of fine wine and asset management. Um, I did some research and found that Cult Wines was, uh, to me, by far the, the best in the world at it with um, 14 years of, of history, as Tom has mentioned, uh, a great track record. Um, wonderful uh, crew around the world of almost 80 people and uh, a real investment focus. So uh, I reached out to Tom and, and that's how we ended up uh, working together like we are now. Um, so to answer your question about what makes an investment grade champagne, yeah. uh, there, there isn't really a, uh, an accepted definition of an investment grade wine as, as a whole. Um, so we look at it from an investment perspective and the way we look at it is what's called our quality to price ratio. And we analyze wines and champagnes um, uh, all around the world for this QPR. And a number of factors go into that, including uh, the brand, the producer, uh, historical price performance, ability to appreciate critic scores, um, you know, th there's just a lot that we do when we analyze uh, whether or not a particular wine is uh, investable and, and whether there's an opportunity to earn 
uh, a decent return for our clients. Um, when it comes to champagne, um, there's there's some factors though uh, that maybe also go into it, like whether it's a vintage champagne or a non-vintage champagne, and then grower champagnes, right? right? Um, which is kind of a new category, maybe, of investment grade that has kind of gone into the that are you know wines that are not from, I guess, the prestige, well-known houses like Krug or I don't know. You 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 should name them. <laughs> I'll say the wrong one, Cristal. I know um, there's many many great ones, but um, yeah, um, either Tom Marto, if you could talk about that a little bit, like what like some of the specific characteristics of champagne that maybe set it apart. Yeah, look, I think from my perspective, I I actually think that champagne within fine wine is quite idiosyncratic, mm. and actually the behavior of wine from an asset and a price appreciation perspective is actually quite unique versus other wineries, other regions and other great varieties, especially within the fine world. And the reason for that is mostly as a result of how champagne is made, the process, the long aging process, and also how it's distributed onto the market. And then when you look at what's happened over the last 10 or 15 years, this evolution of what is champagne, you know, moving from the grand marks, which are, you know, large, behemoths that are buying a huge amount of grapes and they're producing a high number of bottles which are very very high quality yeah no there's there's no mistaking that to this whole new movement of grower champagne which almost creates a subcategory within a category mm. um and so i think the, the 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 original determination of any investment grade wine and the determination of an investment grade wine that i think fits for champagne is something that is of high quality that's of limited supply and of something that will improve and mature with age and essentially i think they are the main dynamics you need for any wine or any fine wine or investment grade wine to have because essentially without that you can't buy and resell at a higher price Right. But I think with champagne and the reason why it's been such a, um, a, a such a great addition for any portfolio from an investment perspective is because of the fact that with champagne, which is so untrue of every other wine region in the world, the wines aren't released, champagnes, they aren't released onto the market until they're ready to be drunk. So essentially, the, the immediate demand supply imbalance that comes through consumption happens at the point of release. So, you know, you think about Bordeaux on Premier, you think about Burgundy on Premier, you think about the new release from Barolo or Bruno Le Montalcino, you think about the new release from California. Even when they've aged them for a couple of years in barrel when they release them on some market visible, or if they release them as a future, these wines don't necessarily get consumed for a long time. Okay, maybe some young vintages will go end up in restaurants. With Champagne, you're talking about, you know, this year, sort of 2008 Krug being released onto the market or, you know, vintages that have already gone from a maturation period which means that actually essentially these champagnes are immediately you know available to be consumed and people do immediately consume them and i think that is what's unique about champagne that's different to the other regions is that these prestige cuvee champagnes um are immediately consumed and so therefore that demand supply imbalance is immediately impacting the price performance over time yeah. um but i think what's happened with the grower champagne movement which i'm super excited about is that it's it's almost a, a parallel to for me to, uh, to 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 the excitement and the demand that we see in the Burgundian market, where actually grower champagne is much more terroir driven. It's vineyard specific. It's climat specific. It's it's site specific site specific wine, where the viticulture practices are super important. And this is a really exciting area because you start to get a lot more variation. You get to have particular winemakers have a particular style, have a particular area of vineyard that have a particular process. And that starts to create 
something that you see within white burgundy. And in that respect, you can start to see how some grower champagnes could really accelerate in price appreciation because they're making quite small wines in small production ways in very site-specific ways. And in that regard, it is very different to, you know, a Dom Perignon or a Krug or, you know, some of these big champagne houses that are making, you know, very, very large numbers of bottles each year. Right. And getting their grapes from several growers to try to create that consistency in, 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 in the product that they're offering. Um, Atul, actually, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what, what defines a grower champagne. And and when we, we talked earlier this week, because I did a story about sparkling wines for the holidays and, and some right. other things. And um, and you you mentioned a really interesting story about tasting wines with a group of, I think maybe this group that you mentioned um, earlier, uh, that you, instead of Burgundy, you did a session on, on champagne where you blind tasted and grow, a couple grow champagnes kind of rose to the, to the top. Um, but maybe if you could define it for us. Um, sure. And, which, and when maybe some of the, you know, producers that are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. To pick up on, on what Tom said, uh, the whole grower champagne movement is very exciting because it does introduce an element of terroir and typicity because often growers will use organic practices when they're cultivating grapes. Um, they grow their own grapes. They bottle their own grapes. It, it's very, very uh, uh, interesting and exciting, very Burgundian. Um, and so it, it's a really neat uh, movement. The, the other thing that's, that's interesting is um, many growers, because they want the grape to express itself, do not really do much of what's called dosage, which is adding some sugar or sugar water to champagne to introduce some um, some sugar to counterbalance the acidity. Um, and so when you're looking at grower champagnes, that's an interesting thing to look at. Um, some of the uh, famous producers or, or ones that we certainly watch are Salas, um, Bouchard, and Agripar, for example. Uh, all creating some unique, um, unique champagnes. And the tasting that you refer to uh, was, in fact, uh, a small group of us. Uh, we had 12 bottles of different champagnes, uh, some of the Grand Marks, some of the growers, and it was all done blind. Um, so we all voted. And, and most of us have, have, to be fair, had a lot more Grand Marks in our lives than uh, uh, some of the growers, uh, but that's changing, of course. And when we tallied up the results, uh, the number one um, champagne was 1996 Krug, a Grand Mark, but yeah. a little bit unfair because the, the 96 vintage is, you know, heralded as one of the best of the century, and and certainly when it uh, was released was being compared to um, uh, vintages going back to the 20s. So it was it was an exceptional wine, wow. um, but very close. Uh, number two was a Salas. Uh, non-vintage um, yeah. called uh, Vio version original. And so that opened up uh, a lot of eyes around uh, around the tasting table. And uh, coming in third was a 2009 Agripar um, Venus. And it's named Venus because the horse that plows the, uh, uh, the, 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 the land uh, where um, Agripar is Growing grapes is called Venus, so it uh, just goes to show you the sort of rustic nature of uh, of, of uh, the, the production of the wines. So it was a, it was a very neat tasting, and just to follow on to that from an investment perspective, 
we've seen quite an appreciation uh, in price for a number of growers. And we were looking at the 1996 Krug price today versus the 1996 uh, Silas Milesium uh, price. And uh, in fact, uh, the last trades, uh, the Silas is trading at a value higher than the 96 Krug. So oh, that's, wow. uh, that's really interesting to see. That really tells you something. So we have a question actually from a listener, Gordon, who asked if investing in grower champagne is likely to produce higher long-term returns than investing in, in other producers. I expect he means the the big the big names. And um and he mentioned upcoming producers to watch, but we've we've kind of touched on that. But but what about long-term returns? Do you see and either if either one of you want to jump in on this? Do that one, Tom, or do you want me to? Do it? Yeah, no, I'm happy to jump in. I think the, I think the, if you're looking at it from a price point perspective, a lot of grower champagnes right now are trading at a discount to say the Grand Marks, um, mostly because from a reputational brand perspective, people are less likely to pay two, three, four hundred dollars for you know an up and coming grower champagne producer who they may not have heard about before, and they're starting to sort of find their feet. Um, on the, so I think just from a pure economic perspective, that means they have a greater propensity for, for price appreciation on a pure percentage basis. Um, I think that the grand marks have done exceptionally well this year. You know, if you look at the price performance, we've seen where the growth in the performance has been this year. I'd say that the grand marks have outperformed the grower champagnes. It's not to say grower champagnes haven't done well, but the grand marks is what people are clamoring for right now. They're looking for prime vintages of Salon. They are looking for prime vintages of Crew. They are looking for prime vintages of Dom Perignon, um, as well as Tatanger and, and a lot of those top names. Mm -hmm. So in answer to your question about long-term performance, I think it's always very difficult to say, you know, as a group, would a Grand Marc versus, you know, a, a grower champagne perform better or worse? I think they would give you a slightly different return profile. I think that if you look at a Grand Marc, they're going to probably be more consistent i think that people that have been buying and drinking and consuming don Perignon and, and krug and some of these names that we've mentioned will do so for the next 5 10 15 20 years it's a relatively low risk strategy i think that the grower champagne movement does give you a greater propensity and a greater opportunity for outsized returns but i do think there's a greater deg degree of risk that you have to take on for that so again i think it really depends on someone's appetite for, for risk and their appetite for returns i think if you were someone that wanted to be a bit more adventurous be a bit more like you know let's find the up-and-coming producer that is going to make a two three four x return look you, you know without with, without a doubt it's going to come in the grower champagne movement i think there's clearly a number of producers like a jerome Prevot or a cedric bouchard that those wines in my opinion in the next three or four years will in, increase in value significantly but i think from a relative value perspective and from a risk adjusted return perspective you can't really overlook the grand marks from a consistency and a low risk perspective so it really is a choice between the two and i wouldn't necessarily say you have to go for one or the other i think a balanced approach to, to both would be great and you know at the end of the day who likes drinking one thing or only having one thing on their portfolio it's nice to have a good spread across everything <laughs> Um, so yeah, actually it reminds me, we didn't throw out this statistic yet, but I, I think, uh, the champagne 50 index, which is an index that is produced by LiveX, um, a London marketplace for, for fine wines. They track all kinds of sectors of the wine world and, and their champagne index is, is, um, showing prices up 30, nearly 34% for the year. And I think it's been 
like that for at least a couple of years. Like it's, it's kind of leading the way if I'm right, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, uh, you know, that I guess I'm wondering, you know, what is driving, what is pushing investment grade champagne prices higher? And it's like considerably higher even than Burgundy, Bordeaux, Italy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the one thing I would say about that is that if you look at that 35%, it's actually interesting that the, last 24 percent of that's happened in the last quarter so if you yeah. actually look year to date like january to september is around 10 and a half percent and actually set september till now it's gone up another 24 percent which is really accelerated you actually yeah. look at a graph it's just crazy how it's gone straight up for yeah. me personally i think the 10 percent you've seen january to september is reflective of the broader consumer momentum towards champagne and i think that is representative of true consistent uh long-term returns I think the last 24%, what you've seen last quarter for me, is probably being exacerbated by the global supply chain issues that we're seeing, plus coupled with the fact that the champagne production this year was massively affected by the frosts, massively affected by yields. And so I think you've actually almost had a, you've almost had a perfect storm of, of, of factors that are actually reducing the supply side, whilst at the same time demand is increasing. And so I think that has resulted in a bit of a scramble for champagne I think that has resulted in the exacerbation being a little bit more accentuated than you would do than you would see normally. I don't necessarily say it's like it's not a price bubble. It's just reflective of what we're seeing in the world right now. You know, yeah. in any consumer good right now, it is difficult with the supply chain issues that we're seeing. And I think that this is reflective of that. And it's a combination of, of, of factors. Um, why would the harvest and and this was a really difficult harvest for champagne. I mean, it's never easy to grow champagne to make champagne, <laughs> but it, this was a particularly tough year with frost and rain and mil, you know, mildew happening. And it was just, um, but why would that affect current, the current market, given those wines aren't, aren't released yet? So there's a, there's maybe a couple of um, things to point out there as well. As Tom said, um, the, the price appreciation has been building for some time. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you can even go back to pre-pandemic levels when um, the United States had tariffs introduced on various French wines as part of this Airbus uh, dispute, 25% yeah. tariff. Now, Champagne was exempt. Right. Um, and so you started to see uh, consumers in the United States shifting maybe a little bit of preference towards uh, Champagne versus Bordeaux, for example. Um, and then the pandemic hit. And so at that point in time, uh, the, the committee in Champagne decided to uh, decrease production yields. So they were thinking that there would be a slowdown in demand for Champagne. But in fact, what happened was the opposite. Demand accelerated. And so you started seeing that build last year. And, and as Tom has pointed out, we now have um, supply chain issues and shortages in a number of countries. Right. Um, but uh, it, to, to your specific point of um, the current vintage, because of the climate change that we're seeing, you know, um, uh, temperatures are up over the last 30 years in Champagne by two degrees Fahrenheit, which, which really impacts um, bud break. It happens earlier. And so if you get a frost, it'll damage a large portion of the crop, which is what happened this year. So it'll probably be down 50 to 60 percent. Um, and uh, so I, I think it's it's more of a, a broad um, issue. It's it's not just germane to the 21 vintage. I think people yeah. are looking at this all in, in totality and, and um, 
looking at champagne as a, a good place to be over the longer term. Right. Yeah, but I, I also think that, you know, some of these champagne, champagne houses have to be strategic from a shareholder perspective, from an operational revenue perspective. So, you know, the last, as you said, like, you know, they reduced production, the demand went up, so more inventory has been depleted, but they haven't been able to actually, you know, replace that um, depletion in stock. And so they're now being a bit more strategic about how they release their wines, the pace at which they release their wines and the volume they're releasing. And so that is starting to affect the current market, even though that vintage isn't going to come to the market for a long time. And we've seen it. You know, you look at some of the the, the allocations this year from Dom Perignon new vintage, from the two, from the crew uh, new release. The allocation this year was way below what it has been in previous years. And in my opinion, I think that is forward planning. I think that's forward planning, thinking around, well, we know that there is going to be a supply issue in two, three, four years down the line. Therefore, we're going to keep back more stock now. And I think that is a strategy that we're seeing being played out, not just in Champagne. We are seeing it being played out in other areas. Super interesting. Um, I, I want to kind of go back to something somewhat fundamental, just in terms of um, how you invest in Champagne and portfolios, because um, it's it's you. from what I understand, you wouldn't invest in a 100% champagne portfolio or 100% grower champagne portfolio certainly or 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 the grand marks but but um i'm i'm yeah i'm just curious about how you put portfolios of wine together and we had a question from um a listener sarah who was asking about how champagne compares as an investment to other wine categories in terms of longevity turnover and portfolios correlations you know they're kind of looking at it as a as an asset class over time Sure, I, I can take that one. So um, just like any other asset manager, when we onboard clients, we do a, a thorough know your client and we talk to at, at the, the levels of our portfolios where you get a portfolio manager. Um, we'll talk to the client about um, their their long term uh, goals, their their time horizon, their risk uh, profile, and ultimately build a portfolio that matches what their objectives are. Um, and yes, absolutely. We preach diversification. And so we do have an investment committee that meets quarterly to set benchmark allocations. And um, currently, with respect to champagne, our view is that 10 to 13 percent of a portfolio ought to be uh, in in champagne right now. Um, so that would be our our allocation that we would target for uh, most clients. And uh, in terms of, you know, how does Champagne stack up against other regions? Well, historically, um, it, as Thomas said, the Champagne has provided pretty stable, um, regular returns. And so the, the spike that we're seeing more recently is a little bit out of character for Champagne. However, um, you know, given all of the factors that we've talked about, we have upped our allocation from 10 to 13 uh, percent yeah. because we believe that it's it's a, a medium term to a longer term trend. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's how we approach it. And I should add one of our missions that uh, Tom talked about as well was uh, to increase accessibility to the asset class. And so uh, in in the U.S., we have the ability for clients to onboard at um, $10,000 minimum. And when you onboard at that level, you get the same experience as you would uh, with a portfolio manager. The only difference is it's a digital onboarding and our proprietary algorithm assigns the, um, uh, the, way, uh, the wines and rebalances for you. 
So it's just another way to to create more accessibility to the asset class. Right. What would be a what would be the minimum? <clears throat> it otherwise, if uh, you know, if you weren't going the digital route. Oh, um, it's thirty five thousand U.S. and then you get a dedicated portfolio manager. And, and by the way, um, ten thousand is a good number for us because. As we've talked about, diversification is very important. Um, you can't put all of your eggs in one basket, of course, in, in right. any type of investing. <laughs> it's not prudent. Um, so at uh, at the 10 level, you, you tend to be able to build a, a pretty reasonably diverse portfolio for clients that you can then ultimately branch out on and grow. But that gives you a good core. Right. Right. Do you mind if I just jump in and add a little bit about the champagne as well, which I think is actually a really interesting point and something that we, we sort of look at, which is around the liquidity and the exit route side of things. So mm-hmm. one of the important things that we evaluate with every region and subcategory of wine that we allocate to our portfolios is essentially what is the exit route? What's the strategy? Where are these wines selling? Where's the biggest market? What's the biggest export? And one thing about champagne, which I think is quite unique versus other regions in the fine wine world, is that the biggest export markets for both champagne for champagne is the, you know uk and the us and china is a very 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 small percentage of the overall champagne market and the only reason i mention that is that if you actually look at burgundy or bordeaux in particular those two regions mm-hmm. um you know sometimes the performance of those two regions is actually quite highly correlated to the demand that you see within mainland china i'm not saying that's a particular risk with those areas it is something to be a consideration i don't necessarily think those you know china are going to suddenly stop consuming and drinking red wine and their favorite regions of bordeaux and burgundy will suddenly not be anymore but what's interesting about champagne what we've really liked about it as a hedge within a hedge is essentially, you know, exposure to champagne and grower champagne to a certain extent allows a wine investor to actually provide downside protection against maybe rising prices that we see in Burgundy. And the reason I say that is because actually the dynamics that are driving Burgundy prices and Bordeaux prices is different to the dynamic that's driving champagne prices. So we actually use it quite nicely as a hedge between over allocation or overexposure to Bordeaux and Burgundy. And so they're the type of things that we look at in terms of where's the exit route, where's the demand, where's the export yeah. markets for these particular wines. That's so interesting. Um, so we have a question from a listener um, that kind of speaks to this investment grade aspect of it, although it's a question about drinking champagne. Um, it's Steve who asks, um, shouldn't champagne be drunk within a few years versus storing it like you would with wine? So I think that, that a lot of people f- think that, 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 that that's the case. And I'm wondering, you know, he's asking, can they mature with age or grow in value with age? So uh, to either one of you. Everyone wants to jump in on that one. That's all. I'll let you go. Let you take sure, I'll, I'll okay. um, I know you've got more experience drinking old champagne than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's a really interesting question when it comes to champagne. So one of the things we maybe should just define is a vintage year. Um, so it's really interesting because in champagne in the region, only in the great years is a vintage actually declared. Um, and so that might happen, call it four times in a decade. And when a vintage is declared, then in order to put that year, the vintage year on a bottle, all of the the grapes in that bottle have to come from that harvest. And so that's what a vintage champagne is. Non-vintage champagne, you're allowed to blend various years with the current harvest. So it produces a more consistent style of, uh, uh, of champagne. So that's important to know. Now, in terms of drinking and investing, uh, the, the great thing about that is because vintages aren't declared every year, it automatically 
produces scarcity. And um, therefore, as those vintage um, champagnes get released into the market, absolutely, because of the delay in releasing them into the market, you can pop and, and drink straight away if, if you like. Um, or you can hang on and let the champagne mature and develop some different characteristics, often nuttiness, toastiness, uh, coconut. And um, because of that, over time, what we've seen is that vintage champagnes over time will give you great price appreciation because of scarcity, because the supply gets um, uh, drunken down, if you will. Right. Um, Non-vintage champagne tends not to age as well, generally speaking. Um, and so non-vintage is developed a little bit more for the immediate pop and pour palette. And, um, <laughs> you know, you can enjoy those uh, straight away and, and don't worry too much about laying them down for a long period of time, generally speaking. Yeah, it's. I remember when I first learned that you could age champagne, I was shocked. It just seems, and I know the bubbles too get a little bit like yeah. calmer over time, but that's it, right. that, that the taste develop. That's right. Less effort, effervescence. And uh, um, uh, everyone has a different style. One of the most noted experts in champagne is Serena Sutcliffe. Um, she was director of, of wine at uh, Sotheby's. Right. And she's written some really neat books about just wine styles and the, the, the type of wine drinker style. Mm -hmm. And so um, it is kind of cool because there are profiles. And um, I'd say at our house, uh, my wife and I kind of fit into the the category of the the nuttiness fans and, and the, the muted effervescence. So I see. To enjoy older wines. Yeah, you like the older wines. So we we are kind of, we are totally out of time, but I, I did want to ask each of you what you're drinking for the holidays. So maybe like in two seconds each, you could tell tell me what uh, what are the wines that you turn to just for just for drinking pleasure, not necessarily investment pleasure. Maybe Tom, you can start with you. Yeah, so um, I have to admit, and it's not going to surprise you with the beard and uh, my, my, my youthful complexion, um, <laughs> that I am very much on the trendy side of, of, of wine. So for me, I am very much uh, been stocking up my wine fridge, ready for, ready for the holidays, ready for Christmas, yeah. with some grower champagnes. Mm. And in particular, um, one producer that's really wowed me immensely in the last few times I've tasted it, which is Frederick Savar. Um, incredible wines, amazing purity. Um, I had one of his Premier Cru Vineyard wines recently, a 2013 Disgorgement, which was absolutely outstanding. And then probably my two go-to grower champagnes. So Jerome Prevost, which is starting to become a really cult-driven winery, really hard to find. Um, he has a rosé champagne called Faximile which mm. is 100% Pinot Noir, which is wow. out of this world in terms of the purity. I'm a massive Burgundy fan anyway. I love Pinot Noir. And this is, without doubt, my, without doubt, the number one expression of Pinot Noir in Champagne that I've ever tried. Um, and then the last one for me, which I think is probably like sort of in between the two, which is the Cedric Bouchard, Rosé de Jean. Um, I just think that he's doing incredible things. You know, every disgorgement, every time I taste one of his new cuvées, I'm just blown away by the purity of the fruit, the quality, the tension, the terroir typicity. So they're the three for me that I've got prepared for the holidays. I'm really that looking sounds, forward to cracking into them. That sounds amazing. I, I want to go to London and uh, <laughs> go to one of your parties. <laughs> um, yeah. Atul? 
Yeah, yeah for me, um, it's I guess it's sort of a bit like point counterpoint here. Um, for me, uh, <laughs> we actually, uh, uh, in anticipation, started started a uh, uh, 2004 Perrier Jouet, which oh, is yeah. a beautiful Belle Epoque uh, bottle. Uh, uh, when this uh, webcast is over, our holidays will start. <laughs> Great. Um, so we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll share that over over lunch. Um, but uh, we'll we'll probably uh, definitely New Year's Eve. We've got a nice crew uh, selected uh, mm. for that evening. But uh, I can say in agreement with Tom, uh, we do have some Cedric Bouchard lined up as well. Um, again, just doing some amazing. Um, wines in uh in in champagne and, and a, an incredible producer that uh um personally speaking I, I i think is still very underrated that's great wonderful well thank you i have a zillion questions left on the table as you as you know <laughs> but uh we'll just have to do this again um so that's all the time we have thank you both tom and atul for sharing your champagne expertise and investment knowledge super super interesting um Baron's Life will be so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So Baron's Life will be back on Monday. Um, senior managing editor Lauren Rublin and reporter Nicholas Jasinski um, will be talking about the investment outlook with uh, Savita Subramanian, who is head of US equity and quantitative strategy at Bank of America Global Research. Thanks everyone. Stay safe and healthy. Bye-bye. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.